HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware, a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecruzet.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. It's Thanksgiving, so we're talking turkey with sweet potato casserole, stuffing, cranberry sauce, and pecan pie. But we're also discovering some surprising truths about this holiday. As it turns out, roasted turkeys are actually nowhere near the original Thanksgiving tables. In fact, most of the foods we eat for Thanksgiving today weren't eaten in Plymouth. And you know, a lot of the dishes came about, well, because of the products that were on the shelves and the marketing that told us this is the product we should use. Every once in a while, though, the consumer creates the food trend. Care to top the turducken, anyone? Uh, I've got to give credit to this fellow that said this is the best pile of meat I've ever had and then said, but if you added bacon. Tune in to this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So before we get into today's conversation, a quick reminder that Heritage Radio's annual holiday gala, Winter in the Garden, is this Monday, December 3rd, at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Um, I'm going to be there doing a couple of my favorite things, eating delicious food and talking about farming. So if you're in New York, you should definitely join me. Um, to get your ticket, just head to heritageradionetwork.org backslash gala and use the code FARMREPORT, all capitals, no spaces, FARMREPORT, for 10% off your ticket. All right, so that's out of the way. Um, today, I'm here with Leah Penniman, a farmer, teacher, and activist who is the founder of Soul Fire Farm and is the author of the brand new book, Farming While Black. Leah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So, first of all, congratulations on the release of your book. Thank you. It was a big undertaking, and it's very exciting to have it out in the community. 
Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you're doing all kinds of uh, book tours and talks and, right, there's sort of this whole thing that happens after you publish where you... Right, where yeah. you talk about farming <laughs> instead of farming, yes. Right, <laughs> <laughs> which we're going to make you do um, today. So um, I thought um, the most appropriate way to start is I think um, you're going to read a passage for everyone. Take it away. Thank you. Here we go. While farming was initially healing for me, for many African heritage people, it is a triggering and re-traumatizing experience. Almost without exception, when I ask black visitors to Soul Fire Farm what they first associate with farming, they respond, slavery or plantation. As my friend Chris Bolden Newsom says, the field was the scene of the crime. Hundreds of years of enslavement have devastated our sacred connection to land and overshadowed thousands of years of our noble, autonomous farming history. Many of us have confused the terror our ancestors experience on land with the land herself, naming her the oppressor and running toward paved streets without looking back. We do not stoop, sweat, harvest, or even get dirty because we imagine that would revert us to bondage. And yet we are keenly aware that something is missing, that a gap exists where once there was connection. This generation of Black people is becoming known as the returning generation of agrarian people. Our grandparents fled the red clays of Georgia, and we are now cautiously working to make sense of reconciliation with the lands. We somehow know that without the lands, we cannot return to our freedom. Thank you so much for reading that. Um, I'm so glad you chose that um, passage because I, you know, we talked a little before this. I had um, marked that in the book, this sort of um, idea that you bring up about internalized trauma um, related to the land. Um, I think it's, it's, I hadn't, I'd never really thought about that. And I think it's so important. Um, I, and then so after that passage, you, you talk about the trauma and then you talk about how at Soulfire, um, part of what you do is using land um, to sort of heal that trauma as well, right? And I was like, it's, it's kind of blows your mind. So it's like you're saying there's this connection to land that's so traumatic, but then it's all this, also the source of healing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how is it possible for it to be both and how do you make that happen? <laughs> Just a small question. I know, that's, that's the, the question, right? right. Um, and I think it's so important not to skip over the trauma. You know, yeah. hopefully all of your listeners know about slavery, uh, for sure, and know about the way that the land was stolen from Native folks and continues to be stolen. You know, but it didn't just end with those hundreds of years of enslavement. There was sharecropping and tenant farming, which was essentially a debt peonage system where you just deeper in poverty every year and still on the plantation. Um, there's convict leasing, which is when, you know, you're convicted of a so-called crime and then are leased back to the plantation or to the mines. The H-2A program, Bracero. So th there's just so many ways that workers have been exploited on land. And mm. so, but I think the distinction is that, you know, the land, as Chris said, is the scene of the crime, but she was not the criminal. So it's really about disentangling our relationship to land from our relationship with oppression. Right. You know, so at Soul Fire, we, we don't skip over that. We spend a lot of time learning about that history and learning about how our ancestors resisted every step of the way and how we continue to resist and, and reintroduce ourselves to the land as a, a source of healing as opposed, you know, to just the site of that oppression. Right. And can, I, I think we should spend a little bit of time talking about um, 
Soulfire, what you do there. I mean, because so we sort of jumped into the book, um, but the book is really born out of years of work that you've been doing, right, at Soulfire. Um, and I think it's, I, I haven't been, but I think it's a very unique um, farm and model. And um, so can you just kind of give people a little bit of background about the work that you do there? Sure. Um, Soulfire, my husband and I joke that Soulfire is our third child. We love this project so much. Uh, but it is a people of color led community farm on 72 acres, way upstate New York, outside of Albany, covered in snow right now. And there's nine of us in the community right now, and we run a commercial farm. So we feed about 300 individuals every week through a farm share program. We do doorstep delivery to folks who need it most, and we grow all our food using Afro-Indigenous sustainable practices. Uh, so that's that's the foundation of what we do is running this farm, um, which farmers know is, is a ton of work unto itself. But layered on top of that, we have educational programs to train new farmers, specifically black indigenous folks who want to return to the land, make a life there, or do you know food justice work. And most of our programs are these 50-hour intensives where folks stay with us for a week. We have over 500 graduates who are all super incredible. And then we do a lot of organizing. You know, We're trying to get our land back. We're trying to get our resources back. And so that means changing laws and changing minds. So we work regionally with indigenous communities around land rematriation as well as nationally on policy change. Wow. So you're a little bit busy, it sounds like. <laughs> Yes, we are making the most of this short, precious life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, you just, in in that answer and and in what you were talking about before, you talked a lot about um, stolen land. And um, I I think, um, you know, we started out talking about the trauma, which is one of the um, sort of legacies of slavery and all these oppressive systems. Um, But one of the things you get into in the book... um, on top of that is the real economic legacy of slavery. And this is um, one thing I pulled from the book. Um, You say the typical white household has 16 times the wealth of a typical black household. 80% of wealth is inherited, often traceable back to slavery. That I just, I think that is so incredibly important. Like the, the fact that this is, this is now we're, you know, we're, we need to be talking about this now that like, that economic legacy is so present in people's lives. Um, and, and then on top of that, the stolen land issue. Um, and one of the things that I think is really interesting that you've done is this um, reparations map. I'd love if you could explain um, how you created that and like what the goal is there. Definitely. And thanks for jumping right into these uh, challenging and important topics. <laughs> You know, reparations and repair have the same roots. Mm. And to me, it's so important to put a reparations frame. Um, and here's why. So I'll tell you this quick story. One of okay. my mentors, Ed Whitfield, who's a cooperative developer, he was very involved in the civil rights movement. He said, you know, imagine that your neighbor stole your cow. And a couple of weeks later, your neighbor comes back and to your house and says, you know, I'm really sorry. It wasn't right. I took your cow. You know, I, I really didn't mean to do that. Is but I'm going to make it up to you. You know, every week for the rest of the cow's life, I'm going to bring you half a pound of butter. Right? What would you say? <laughs> You're like, give me my cow back. You know, I don't want, I don't want a little pittance. Right. And so a lot of times when we look at racial justice issues, we are framing it in terms of half a pound of butter. You know, a little program here, some free food here. Right. But fundamentally, if we don't have the means of production, if we don't have land, wealth, capital, 
It's not possible to run our own businesses to have any any semblance of sovereignty. So the reparations map is a really small step in that direction. Um, Obviously, we need wholesale government-funded reparations, so I'm not excusing anyone there. Mm. But in the meantime, there's a lot of folks who are coming into consciousness and saying, wait, this wealth that I inherited from my grandparents is not really mine. You know, I don't really have a right to it. I want to make sure I distribute that fairly. And we're giving those folks an opportunity to match up with black and brown farmers and earth keepers who need things, whether it's land, a tractor, technical assistance, just money in the bank. And hand that over. And so we've had, you know, modest success. We've had over a dozen matches just in the first nine months of that coming um, into being, including some some lands transfers. So wow. that's very exciting for us. Can you can you share like a story? Is there like one that um, you could talk a little bit about? Like, I d- I'm just curious, like what that really looks like, that transfer of land, you know? Yeah, so one is the Harmony Farm and Homestead, which is a couple hours south of Soulfire Farm. And what I love about this one in particular is the person who received the land is a graduate from Soulfire's programs. Mm. And the person who donated the land is a white woman who graduated from our Uprooting Racism training, which is a reparations training, and said, well, I have this family land. I want to give it over. And so the Harmony Farm is you know, just in its second year right now. It's it's obviously producing food, but also doing a lot of community healing work. Uh, they offer peer counseling workshops and meditation and things like that um, that have been a great benefit to the community. So That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and is that like an ongoing, like are you keeping that map going, like adding to it all, all the time? Like will it be growing? Like, is it just sort of an ongoing project? Absolutely. And we try to keep it really simple and decentralized. So any Black, Indigenous, Latinx, Asian person who has a land-based project that needs resources, they can reach out to us. There's a you know two-minute application, and then we put them on the map. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Um, let's talk about, um, while we're on, we're talking about Soulfire, um, you have an um, interesting ownership model, um, like a cooperative model. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that works? Oh, it's such a tangle right now. So we're very much in process. <laughs> okay. So Soulfire Farm itself is a nonprofit organization uh, with a staff and a board and all of that nonprofity stuff. Um, but we do keep the farm finances separate in the sense that we want to show that we're economically viable as a farm business because okay. we're training farmers not to be grant recipients. The land is currently owned by our family, and we're deep in a two-year process with uh, student lawyers who are helping us put it into a co-op, really a collective, because a co-op in New York State is a specific type of corporation, Mm -hmm. Um, but a one-member, one-vote collective where families can, you know, buy in for the right to put a residence and so on and so forth. One thing that I'm very excited about that is somewhat novel, I don't think there's any yet in New York State, is we're working with the Stockbridge-Muncie Mohican community to put what's called a cultural respect easement on the land. Um, An easement is a deed restriction. But a cultural respect easement is used specifically to allow indigenous folks perpetual access to the land for certain ceremonial purposes, like reburying the remains of their ancestors that were disturbed when the new mall came in or, um, you know, having ceremony, hunting, fishing, trapping, things like that. And so, uh, you know, it's difficult to fit the communal vision that we have into white man's law, which is why it's taking so long. It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, don't forget about the Morgan Act. And and we're like, what is that? So... (laughs) So we're navigating it, but we're hoping in 2019 that we can actually sign this over. That's really interesting. I didn't realize there were easements. Like, I, I know a lot about conservation easements, but um, is that is that easement in for, um, for indigenous communities, is that through the state as well? Or? 
I love that you you clearly know a lot about easements. So this was first uh, piloted in California. So there actually is state law that supports cultural respect easements in California. They have been, um, they're testing the legal system in Maine and Massachusetts to see if they'll allow them. Um, so they have like put some easements on and they're waiting to essentially get a legal challenge. Mm. New York hasn't done them yet. And so we're trying to take the California model and replicate it in other states, which is why I say that it's new and exciting. Right. Because it's this idea of shared sovereignty. You know, when we talked to the Mohican folks, they said, we don't really want to own land. We are we were forced off to Wisconsin in the 1800s. That's where we live. We can't own land in in the Hudson Valley. That's just we can't manage it. We can't pay taxes, but we do want access. And so this tool sort of allows that flexibility where you can have access without having the you know the burden of property management. Right. Um, and how many? So um, at the farm at Soulfire, like typically, like how many people are living and working there now? Well, right now it's covered in snow and everyone took off. Um, <laughs> so there's like four of us. Um, but in the, the peak of the season, there's, you know, between seven and 10 staff. Uh, some of our staff are part-time and seasonal for sure. And then another 20 to 30 program participants. So there's a lot of hustle and bustle. You know, up here, our season is short. So from May until November, we're packing in all the training programs and all the youth programs and all the food distribution. And so... Uh, we affectionately call the main building on our land the hive because it is busy like a beehive with lots of flow through. Mm. <laughs> one one of the things that really struck me like while reading the book is just you're doing so much and farming is really hard. Um, and, you know, like I talk to farmers every day and people, especially starting out on like a small farm, a diversified farm, you know, doing things, doing, uh, using sustainable practices and often like are struggling to even, you know, make minimum wage to sell their, you know, sell their produce at a farmer's market. They're not making enough to take care of themselves and their families. Um, you know, whether they're, um, people of color, white, like in all community, Mm -hmm. it's like farming is just, so hard. And, um, you have this book that's packed with resources and stories about how you have made Soulfire this viable farm that's serving, I think you said more than 300 families. Right. And then also doing all this other programming. I'm just curious, like what, what makes it work? Like, can, you know, what are the things that you found? Like, this is, this is how you can make this work as a business and also, in a way that it's like has a social mission and you know like it it just seems incredible (laughs) like and it's so complicated and I don't want to cast any shade on any farmer because folks are working really really hard and doing all the right things and the food system is is really out to get us you know Mm -hmm. it's not set up where there's a price point where you can actually make a living you know I I read some stat recently, I can't remember exactly, but it's well over 90% of small farmers that have some outside income right and that's certainly how we were up until a year and a half ago, you know? So I've been working mostly full-time, public school teaching, farming after school, farming on the weekends for many years. Um, all of our, st- all of our, vol- you know, everyone's a volunteer until 2016. So we weren't giving ourselves a living wage or giving right. anyone. And so that that's very common. And there's ways that, you know, I hold some, re- I don't know if it's regret, but some shame around that because we're not trying to replicate systems of oppression, but it just isn't possible to sell lettuce and pay people. So we got to this decision point. It was in 2015 where we said, we just can't keep doing this, like working two jobs, not making any money, expecting people to work for free. 
And we, we had to make a choice. Like either we're going to go into the Shishi Greens market and just do this upscale stuff. And, and with that price point, we could pay ourselves and a couple staff. Or our value add, so to speak, could be the educational work and we'll form the nonprofit and then, and then have another revenue stream from program fees and, mm. and grants. And we chose the latter, obviously. Um, all that to say, you know, what makes the farm itself financially viable is a sliding scale model. Like the, the reason we're able to get food to people at a price they can afford in the community, in communities under food apartheid, or as the USDA says, food deserts, is because some folks are paying higher than market. And so we're doing some social market, some social justice marketing because people will pay more than market value for their share so that they're subsidizing the share for an immigrant or refugee family. And so it's been a lot of honing it in. But in this last season, we grossed 60000 and our expenses around 25000 And so that was, that was our, we exceeded our goal. We wanted to show that you could, you know, pay yourself at least minimum wage <laughs> and have some, you know, flow, some money flowing through. Right. You know? It's hard. Um, You just um, mentioned um, the term food apartheid, um, which the USDA um, says is a food desert, right? Why do you use that term um, instead Mm. of the term food desert? Yeah, I have to shout out another mentor, Karen Washington, for teaching me that term uh, of Rise and Root Farm and Black Urban Growers and many other projects. But she, she said, don't say food desert because that government term essentially takes the hunger issue, the poverty issue, and makes it seem like a natural phenomenon because the desert is natural, right? And apartheid is a human-created system of segregation that relegates certain people to food opulence and others to food scarcity. And, you know, in this nation, your zip code determines a lot about your opportunities. Your zip code is going to determine your school, the likelihood of home ownership, what kind of food you have access to. And our zip codes aren't an accident. You know, we're talking about legacy of institutional racism, right. redlining and not having access to the GI Bill and all these reasons why we don't have homeownership and we don't have wealth in certain communities. And the result is hunger, you know, diabetes, heart disease, obesity, because the only foods that we can get in some of these zip codes is like hot Cheetos and blue drink. And right. that's not going to nourish us. Right. And corporations that put their food in neighborhoods are targeting, you know, they're like, if this is a low-income neighborhood, oh, we're going to give you this cheap food that is going to make you sick and powerless. And mm-hmm. I know it's so true. I actually had my high school students a couple of years ago uh, do a price comparison of a chain store that we have upstate called Price Chopper. Mm. And they looked at the cost of the vegetables and fruits and in the affectionately called ghetto chopper, I don't it's kind of a problematic term, but the one like in a food apartheid neighborhood, everything was 20 to 30 percent more expensive, the fresh fruits and vegetables than it was in the wealthier neighborhood. And so there's a lot of I don't know what their justification is, but there's a lot of That's insidious, insidious things going on. Um, yeah, around corporate gatekeeping to good food. Right, right. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's a lot um, in your book. It. it I think just thinking about the terms that um, we use for all the, you know, for when we talk about food and um, race and all kinds of social issues, just um, rethinking like terminology is um, important. And it, it does have an, like, like you said, you know, it's like you just get so used to saying food desert that maybe you don't even realize like that it implies something for people, but um Language is powerful, right? So true. Yeah. 
Um, all right. On that note, um, we're going to take a quick break um, to hear a word from a sponsor. And when we come back, we're going to um, talk more about Farming Well Black with Leah Penniman. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni, the host of Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I was introduced to Le Creuset Cast Iron Skillets many years ago in my first restaurant, Muggsy's Chow Chow in the East Village. Le Creuset has the superior heat retention of cast iron paired with unparalleled performance and the ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. And I love easy cleanup after running my own restaurants in New York for 23 years. Le Creuset Original Heirloom Cookware is backed by a lifetime warranty. Their bold colors and timeless designs allow for an expression of personal style in the kitchen and beyond. Head to lecreuset.com slash HRN. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code HRN. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here with Leah Penniman from Soulfire Farm, author of the new book, Farming While Black. So, um, man, we got into lots of um, <laughs> big questions in the first <laughs> part of the show. Um, I think it would be cool to talk a little bit about um, some of the... Um, some of your practices at Soulfire um, in terms of the actual soil. Um, I love to talk about soil. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and um, I thought it was crazy when, um, can you talk about, you talk in, in the book about the land that you initially found for the farm and how it really was not at all <laughs> um, conducive to farming, I guess, right? Yeah, we were so young and eager. <laughs> <laughs> but and you and you yes. had a lot of ex- you had had a lot of farming experience, correct? Yeah. So right. I started farming when I was sixteen at the food project and worked at farm school in Mass, Many Hands Organic Farm, Youth Grow. So definitely had farming experience, but we couldn't afford that river bottom soil, mm-hmm. and so we ended up purchasing the side of a mountain, essentially. Oh my gosh! And the it was so eroded. It had the previous owner had overgrazed cattle on it and overlogged, and so the soil was just washed down the hill. We, in most places, had about seven inches of topsoil, and then there was this hard pan, gray clay underneath that was pretty impenetrable to any shovels or forks. You know, but one thing that was really neat is having just come from an urban farming experience where we're doing a lot of lead remediation, you learn to build up, you don't dig down. And so we took some of those techniques of sheet mulching and building semi-permanent raised beds and a lot of cover cropping and just built that soil. We tripled it. Um, and wow. all the farmers down the hill from us were shaking their heads like there's no way they're going to grow vegetables on the land. But we've got really nice vegetables. Mostly thanks to the current farm manager, Larissa Jacobson. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out. Shout out. Um, you said there were seven in- or seven inches of topsoil. Can you put that into context for people who maybe aren't farmers? Like how, what, what would be an ideal um, amount? 
I mean, it depends where you are, but in the plains area, the bread basket, you're going to have a few feet of topsoil. Wow. So seven inches is, is not a lot. That's like a finger depth, you know, or right. hands up. <laughs> so how long did it take to get things to a place where you could grow effectively? Let's see. We started soil building in 06, and our first season of commercial farming was 2011. So mm. we spent five years building soil before we were selling food. Wow. Yeah. It really, it's a long game, right? Farming. It is definitely a long game. We were also, <laughs> there was no building, so we had to build a house. So we were busy during that time. Wow. Um, and um, some of the soil restoring practices um, that you talk about um, were really interesting, like um, indigenous soil testing in Africa. And um, one thing I thought was really cool, you talk about George Washington Carver as a regenerative, regenerative agriculture um, pioneer. Um, did you, like, how did you find some of these practices that were pioneered by, um, black farmers and like, did you sort of just, um, incorporate those with other things you were doing? Like talk a little bit about that process of how you came up with your plan and. Oh, thanks for that question. I mean, that was really the impetus for the book because when I was first starting out farming and getting into the organic world and all the conferences and books, everything was so whitewashed, you know, all the presenters and the authors. And I really thought that these methods like raised beds and cover cropping were European or ahistorical and uh, considered quitting farming because no one looked like me and I was being a traitor to my people. It's what it felt like. So... It was Karen Washington, actually, that, that first put the hypothesis in my mind that we weren't being told the whole story. And I started doing research for the curriculum for our training programs at Soulfire based on this hypothesis that, you know, perhaps every single sustainable farming practice that we engage has indigenous or African roots. So let's start with that and see what happens. Let me, like, research raised beds. Let me research terraces, polycropping, livestock. And I haven't found an exception yet. So, so far that's borne out. Um, and it's not that anyone told us that. It's more like we adopted these practices and then we looked at where they really came from. Mm. Like vermicomposting, for example. Cleopatra was the first one to do that. She um, <laughs> was so enamored with worms for their capacity to increase soil fertility that she would put you to death if you killed a worm. Oh and God. she had a group of priests whose full-time study was dedicated to observing the habits of earthworms. And Western science, you know, has since gone in and confirmed, like, that the worm casting depth in, you know, that part of the Nile River Valley is, like, deeper than anywhere else. And so clearly there was something going on that was intentional. Um, but it's things like that, you know, and the book is, is full of dozens of examples of African brilliance in terms of sustainable ag. Mm. And so what were some of the things that, that really moved the needle in terms of, um, like, rebuilding the soil? Like, do you, are there specific practices you think that really turned it around? <laughs> On our farm? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, all those things that I mentioned, the, build, the raised beds, the thick mulches. You know, George Washington Carver talked a lot about this. He admonished the farmers at the end of the season for being lazy and thinking they were done just because it was harvest time was complete. So he said to them, you need to be going to the swamps and dragging muck out from the bottom, you know, go to the forest and pull leaves out and then scatter this organic matter all over your fields, let it decompose over the winter. And at the time, you know, I didn't know anything about that, but that's exactly what we were doing. We were just gathering organic matter from anywhere and just building, building, building. We doubled the organic matter mm -hmm. um, in the soil. Now we have almost 17, 18% OM in our soil, which is really high and, and we're happy about that. Mm. Um and I want to go back to this 
um, point that you just made about feeling like you didn't um, fit or belong in this like world of the food, quote unquote, food movement, you know, I don't know a better term to use, right? (laughs) And like people working on food system change um, and like the conferences especially are incredibly white um, and is that changing? Like you've been doing this work for a while now. Um, Do you feel like there, you do feel like there are more, um, I I don't know. I'm thinking about the question in my mind. Is it changing? I don't know. I think it is changing. There's a few things going on. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I used to go to the Northeast Organic Farming Association conferences Mm. as a teen. It was super white. I could count on my two hands the number of, of people who appeared to be POC, people of color. Mm. And so I literally would go around little slips of paper and, and, and say, hey, meet at one o'clock under this tree so we can talk. That's where I met Karen Washington. And at that point, she said, don't worry, sweetie. Like, one day we'll have our own conference. So that's one thing that's happening is that um, folks in the South have always been having their conferences. Mm. But in the North, in the West, now we have Black Urban Growers. We have the National Black Food and Justice Alliance. So there are these spaces specifically for us. In addition to that, I've seen a number of white-led organizations really start to take equity seriously. Um, NISOG, the Northeast Sustainable Ag Working Group, a very colorful conference. Um, I know that NOFA is working to diversify its board and doing targeted outreach. And, you know, we could get into what's problematic about outreach and all those things. But I do think that there is at least a consciousness that we need to widen the table and widen the conversation. And so I think there's a shift. Yeah. Is the consciousness enough? Like what, what do you feel like, um, really needs to happen? Um, what do, um, these organizations, white led organizations, um, need to do to, to really make it meaningful? It's a good question. And I think that sometimes it's an existential question because my belief is that if we're going to talk about food system change, we really need to center the people who are most impacted by food system oppression. So that's farm workers, that's indigenous folks who don't have their lands anymore. Um, That's people who don't have access to good food because they're living under food apartheid. It's, It's dispossessed black farmers. And the things that we need as the folks targeted by food system oppression might not line up with the missions of these white-led organizations. Mm -hmm. And I really, someone posited this term, which I think is bristly, but kind of important, provocative of of white followers. So instead of white organizations trying to take the lead and define the conversation and set the table, really following the lead Uh. of folks of color, um, but that might mean that some organizations are obsolete, you know, and that's that gets to some some challenging conversations. If you know what a federation of cooperative federation of southern cooperatives says to, I don't know, NOFA or the Moses Conference, like we just want your money so we can do the thing that we're doing, and you right. can help us. <laughs> right. So I think I think those are those are real questions we have to look at. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a it's. I don't know. I, it's a question I think about a lot. I go to a lot of conferences. <laughs> I bet you do. Yeah. As, a, as a journalist covering the food system, um, I go to a lot of conferences. And sometimes I think, oh, like, you know, this is changing. And then other times I'm like, there's every single person in the room is white. Like, it. it I mean, it definitely still happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so on that note, um, I I think, like, you know, just – in terms of like the biggest takeaway, like when in your bio and like in, in the book, you talk a lot about a lot about your goal of kind of overarching goal, of like building an anti-racist food system. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
what does that look like? Ooh. (laughs) Well, part of it is I think it's something we need to define together. But from the listening that I've been doing in the community, I think it has to do with one land redistribution so that all people, regardless of our heritage, color of our skin, or documentation status, have the ability to secure land tenure, um, an inheritable land tenure, something to pass on to their children, to the next generation. You know, right now, according to the 2012 USDA census, I think it was, it's somewhere around 95% of rural lands is in the hands of white folks. So that's super skewed in a country that's at least half people of color right mm-hmm. now. So, so that's one thing is land reform. I think another thing is making sure that the resources that are designated for farmers, the crop insurance, the 2501 grants, the technical assistance, land-grant universities, all of that stuff is shared in a way that's, that's equitable. Um, even today, even after the USD has been sued so many times and had to settle you know, a ridiculous amount of money out of court, there's still disparities in terms of who can access those programs. And, and they're, they strongly favor commodity producers, large-scale corporate farms, as opposed to small producers of any, any race. Mm-hmm. And then I think the third thing is making sure that um, you know, that the consumers of food not just have access to good food, but also have avenues for power and control in the food system, democratize the food system, um, which is tricky, you know, because I think if, if moms and dads were in charge, junk food marketing to children and KFC in schools would not be a thing, <laughs> you know, and so we have to figure out, right. figure out the ways that the people impacted by these issues have a voice in dictating the policy that that controls their destinies, really. Right. So we've got a lot to do. We have a ton <laughs> to do. And we have a full, you know, policy action plan on our website on, a, on the take action on soulfirefarms.org so folks can check it out. And it's all written by black and brown farmers in terms of what change we want to see. Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much for being here. Um, I really, really appreciate you coming on the Farm Report. Um, and um, if people want to find out more, they can pick up your book. Farming While Black, um, everywhere, I would imagine, books are sold, right? Yes, you can get it from Chelsea Green Publishing, mm-hmm. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, all the places. Great. Um, can people visit the farm? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we have a monthly community work day where folks can volunteer, have a potluck lunch, and take a tour. And those run from April to November. So just watch, watch our website. We'll post the dates probably the beginning of January for all of 2019. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Leah. Thank you. Um, Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe, rate, and share it. See you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter, Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage.
Thanks for listening.